Men's Health magazine did a story, What Your Car Says About You. And the, the key takeaway, particularly for blokes, was that blokes see, blokes, a lot of blokes see cars as like an extension of themselves. So psychologists and other smart people could look at a car and go, and I think sort of make, like make some observations about the person who owns this car just from looking at it. For example, in America, I'll keep this, in America, Audi drivers tend to live in big coastal cities near the beach, they tend to work in consulting or advertising, and they tend to watch too much TV. Ford drivers, which is much more relevant for us, Ford drivers tend to work manual jobs like construction and, and building. They, they like dogs and football and beer and pies and, and they, get their, they get their hands dirty, right? Toyota drivers are a bit more spontaneous, they, but, they, but they, uh, they like soccer and guacamole and, and, and exercise and that sort of thing, right? Uh, Honda drivers tend to work in education or health and they like art and science and family. And then there's those other people. Those other people who tend to, um, you know, they, maybe they value their appearance, they hate going bald, and they consider themselves when they're driving better than 90% of the other uh, road users. And those people, don't shoot me, tend to drive either a Mercedes or a BMW. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just reading what, I'm, what I've got here, right? Now... I will let you go to morning tea this morning and discuss whether those results apply to you or not, okay? You can, you can go and, and, and debate that over. Please don't go and look at the car next to you this morning as you leave and go, I wonder who's that is, right? But the, the question was, what does your car say about you, okay? And this is essentially the same question that the Apostle Paul asks this mate of his, and his mate's name is... Philemon. I know it's been pronounced about 10 other turn of the line. I'm going with Philemon. Right. And the question he asks him is, is this. What does the gospel say about you? To what extent does the fact that Jesus exists and Jesus died and Jesus rose again and Jesus is coming back influence how you live and how you think and how you act? It's... Um, we're working our way through this, this wonderful book here called Immerse. If you're new and you don't know what Immerse is, there's still a couple of books up there. You can grab one because some very generous person bought the last couple. So if you haven't got one of these, grab it. We're actually halfway through church, which is, um, which is amazing. It's a whole New Testament in eight weeks. And if you're falling behind like some of us, including one of your pastors who will remain anonymous, I'm only one, one day behind, um, keep on going. Okay, keep on pushing on. Keep keep on keep on reading. Skip the parts that you miss. Keep up to the day that you're on. You can we can always go back and get the ones we miss later on. But what I, you know, Philemon is is written against this this backdrop of slavery, and we're going to have to talk about that. And and but can I just the book's not really about slavery. It's not. It's about what happens when God transforms a life by his grace. That's what the book's about. And what I, what I, say, what, what I, I tend to read these things and come up with this question, and the question in my, in my mind today was, we, we tend to be really, really good when it comes to receiving God's grace. But I wonder, do we actually, 
to what extent do we actually extend that grace to other people around us? So here's what's going on. Philemon is the big landowner. He's the, he's the prosperous, wealthy fella. He's got the, the, the farm with like a thousand hills sort of thing. There's stuff happening all over the place. There's people everywhere. There's fruit on the vine. Everything is good for this guy. And he's not just, he's not just a Christian. Like his wife, his wife and him are Christians. And that must be nice for them. But they've gone the extra mile and, and planted a church in their, in their home. So there's, there's this guy called Onesimus, who is, a, who is a slave who belongs to, to Philemon. And at some point in the past, Onesimus has done something. We're not, we're not quite sure what it is, but he's either stolen some money or beaten somebody up, and he's done the runner. And so Philemon is, is a couple of things. Not only is he annoyed that this has happened to him, not only is he probably lost some credibility in the eyes of the people around him. But he's probably out of pocket as well. And Onesimus is this guy who's this fugitive on the run from justice and he has no intention of coming back. But God in his sovereignty had other plans. Um, Onesimus somehow runs into Paul in prison, uh, comes to faith, he has his life changed. He starts delivering letters for Paul to churches like Ephesus and uh, Colossae, which is Ephesians and Colossians. But he has this third letter that he's got to deliver. And it means that he has something to go home and resolve. And so the picture that, that I've got in my mind is Onesimus, this slave, carrying this bit of paper, and he must be sort of doing this one as, as he walks in the door. Maybe, maybe he walks in to church in the middle of their service on a Sunday, on a Sunday if they met on a Sunday. Maybe he walks into the middle of, of, this, of this little house church on that morning. And Paul says in this letter, essentially, mate, you say you're a Christian. You say that you've been forgiven and changed by God. What does the gospel say about what you do now? I love these little books in the Bible because, you know, when I was just talking, thinking this morning about Nathan's sermon series in Colossians, fantastic stuff. I loved it. But Paul talks about all these little things like, you know, faith and love and unity and, and then how that extends to different things. And then all of a sudden, there's this little book called Philemon, which just is the practical outworking of all this stuff that Paul has just talked about. It's a little example you ever wonder why God doesn't tend to give more examples? He did. And Paul's starting point is to ask Philemon, before you act, before you respond in, in whatever you're going to respond, remember who you are in Christ. That's his starting point. Verse 4 says this, I always thank my God when I pray for you, Philemon, because I keep hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people. And I am praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith, including with this dirty, no good, low down, miserable, rotten sinner, as you understand and experience the things we have in Christ. I might have added a little bit to that. 
But that's essentially what Paul's saying, okay? Even though on a societal level, Philemon, you are the influential landowner, you're the guy who has a fair bit of clout in, in what's going on here, I want you to remember that you're no better than this guy. You're no... You both are people who are in need of God's grace. That's a very humbling message for this guy who, by all accounts, is a good leader. He's a great pastor. He's a a good guy to work for. And why is it that that Paul sees fit to almost have a dig at this fellow who's doing all the right things about about remembering who he is? Maybe, maybe, there's two, maybe there's two answers to this question. One is that the fact, when you are forgiven by God, it changes everything about every decision that you make after this day. It changes everything about how you view and think about the world. Your faith means everything. But I can't, I, I can't help but wonder if there's a second thing to this. I tend to... I think that maybe people who are in positions of prominence, people who are in positions of of leadership or some sort of societal um, importance are the ones who tend to believe their own PR a bit too much. I wonder if if they're the people who need to be reminded a little bit more, just lovingly, about being humble and being teachable. You know, one of the greatest threats to, to the Christian life, I think, is pride. I think it's this thing where, where we, spe- we spend the vast majority of our time looking at the people around us and saying, well, I'm not as bad as them, so therefore I must be pretty good. I must be awesome. And Paul is essentially saying, none of you have reached this level of, you know, spiritually, this spiritual level of achievement where you are better than everybody else. What he's saying is that the Christian life is just a lot of opportunities to humbly show the grace and love and mercy and the forgiveness that Jesus has showed us. It doesn't get any, any better than that. But it's awesome. Yeah. Is it? Oh, I'm terribly sorry. I think I should have shaved this morning. Um, doesn't matter. The key, the key thing here, essentially, is Paul is saying to this guy, you have just as much need of grace as this guy in front of you does. And that has to inform how you respond to the situation that, that you're in front of. Point two. Philemon... Start thinking in terms of the gospel. Start thinking about it. Verse 8 says this, This is why I am boldly asking a favour of you. I could demand it in the name of Christ, because it's the right thing for you to do. But because of your love, I prefer simply to ask you. This This is not Paul forcing a decision on him. This is him letting it open. Consider this as a request from me, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner for the sake of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you, verse 10, to show kindness to my child, Anisimus, 
I became his father in the faith while here in prison. Onesimus hasn't been of much use to you in the past, and now he is very useful to both of us. I'm sending him back to you, and with him comes my own heart. I wanted to keep him here with me while I'm in these chains for preaching the good news, and he would have helped me on your behalf, but I didn't want to do anything without your consent. I wanted you to help because you were willing, not because you were forced. Now, I, there's, we can't under, under, understate what's going on here. Philemon has got a very, very messy decision to make. Because, and it's, it's complicated by the fact that he has to do it in public. Okay? His, his decision on many, many layers is, is like, you know, as, a, as a business owner, as a Christian, as a pastor, as an employer, he's, he's got a lot of different things to, to balance here. There's nothing easy about this decision at all. And here's the danger for him. If, if Philemon understands his identity as an employer, or if he understands his, his, his role as somebody who has been wronged, then what he's going to do is he's going to make a decision that makes him feel, I'll sort this guy out, right? He's going to make that decision, and that decision might work for him, but it won't glorify God. I just, just, just think this week, this, you know, this, this thing, glorify God, is, is not a, a Sunday thing. Paul's not saying you can do that on a Sunday. Like you can live your life in little compartments and glorify God works on a Sunday. He's saying that glorify God is one of those things that makes sense for every situation on every day of your week. I missed this when I was in the police force. I've got to be honest about it. Glorify God makes just as much sense with that annoying co-worker who is driving you crazy on a Thursday as it does on a Sunday. Glorify God makes just as much sense for how you treat your family and your spouse and your kids on a Tuesday when you're tired and they're They've had a couple too many 7-Eleven Slurpees. That happened in our house this week. Um, glorify God has everything to do with how we forgive and let go of, let go of grudges with that, with that fellow in that, in that flashy sports car who cut us off. You know, glorifying God has, has everything to do with how we, as the person at the shopping centre with the last packet of toilet paper loves the person behind us who's going to miss out. Maybe we buy it and share, I don't know. We've got to start thinking. What, what Paul is saying here is think in terms of the gospel. Think in terms of what outcome is going to glorify God the most. That, that, that is a really difficult um, decision to make. And can I just give you a word of warning? It's going to be the decision that is going to keep you up at night. It's going to be the decision that you lose sleep over, that you argue with your co-workers about, that you, where there's different you know, levels of, you know, of, of complexity to all these things. It's going, to be, it's going to be one of those. But that's why God gave us his spirit. That's why God gave us his word. That's why God gave us a church full of people who are going through the same situations that we can draw upon. 
That's why God told us so much about reliance. Because we don't make these decisions in isolation. You make them with that intention. I wonder if, it, if you're in that place this morning where, where your decision-making or your, or your situation in life just needs that really hard decision. What, what, a, what a good way to start. What a good way to start. What outcome here, God, is going to give you the most glory? Third thing. Paul invites him, act with the gospel in mind. Act with the gospel in mind. Live out what you say that you believe. So this is verse 15. It seems like you lost Onesimus a little while for a little while so that you could have him back forever. He is no longer like a slave to you. He's more than a slave. For he is a beloved brother, especially to me. And now he will mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. Notice the, notice the, person, notice the personal connection as Paul emphasises this last bit. If you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way, charge it to, my, charge it to me. I, Paul, write this with my own hand I will repay it. And I won't mention that you owe me your very soul. (laughs) Yes, my brother. Please do me this favour for the Lord's sake. Give me this encouragement in Christ. I love this last bit. I am confident because I know you, because I understand who you are. I am confident as I write this letter that you will do what I ask and even more. Let's get to that elephant in the room, that whole, that whole issue of slavery. And I, I can't cover the whole thing this morning, because, but, but, but we, um, we rightfully understand the issue of slavery as a horrific thing. That's, that's just what it is. It's okay, that we, it's okay that we say that. But we've got to understand that the context that Paul, that Paul is talking about, the, the practices of what his day is, is very, very different to what our modern understanding of slavery is. Um, there, there was no bankruptcy solutions for people. There was no um, you know, government welfare plans or redundancy packages or, or that sort of stuff in this culture. So people had to, for want of a better word, survive. And the vast majority of slavery in the Bible is either contractual or it is voluntary. So if a family was unable to repay the debt... That whole family could elect to go into slavery for a period of time to satisfy that debt. Or um, you know, maybe if, if things are a bit scarce and we're a bit, you know, the, the economy's going bad, the weather's not right, nothing's growing, I can, I can voluntarily enter into a period of, of you know, slavery just to keep things going. Now, we can look at this now and, and go, well, that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. I, I think all of us can probably agree including Paul, that this is far from God's ideal. It's far from God's ideal. And maybe the, the question that comes to my mind is, well, why, why doesn't Paul use this opportunity to fix it? Why, why doesn't he get the, get the, opinion, the opinion thing of, of our day? Why doesn't he pull out his 140 characters on Twitter and just let them have it? Why doesn't he just 
write a letter to the editor and tell them how tell the government how, how wrong they've got it. Tell the, tell the people of the day how wrong they've got this thing and how they need to change it. There's probably a whole heap of answers to that question. But I think the reason he doesn't is because he's not interested in a symptom. He's not interested in a symptom. He's not interested in, in one issue that, that is prevalent to his day. What he's talking about is the gospel which is relevant for every issue of every day, of every practice, of every situation in every church. In every human heart, the gospel is the thing that has the power to change people's hearts and society's hearts and it's the thing that, that inevitably brings social change. That's, that's, what, that's what it's supposed to do. Paul is not, so Paul is not put, you know, getting an axe and cutting off a branch. He's going for the roots. He's, he's trying to cut the whole thing down. I want, you, I want you to get this. Paul is not saying to Philemon, just get over it and let this one slide. He's not saying to, 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 to just take one for the team. Get with the program. Take one for the team. Tolerate him. Put up with... He's not saying that. What he's saying is, actually, Paul is taking on the role of Jesus. He's saying, if he has wronged you, Charge it to my account. If he has wronged you, make him your beloved brother and let him go free. There's nothing simple about what Paul's asking this guy to do. This is completely unheard of in this context. But that's what the gospel does. It changes people's hearts, it changes people's thoughts, it changes people's actions. And he says to, says to him essentially, even though this guy doesn't deserve it, let him go free because you didn't deserve it either. You didn't deserve forgiveness. You didn't deserve any of this stuff, but yet Jesus did it for you. Now this outcome costs both these guys. Philemon has to be ready to forgive. He's got to be ready to actually practice what he says that he believes. Anisimus probably has to make some restitution. He probably has to, to come up with some sort of plan to make this right. And it would cost both these. It, it, it would cost them some hard conversations. It would cost them some honest adult conversations, some, some things that have to get worked through. But can you imagine the power that it would have in a church? Can you imagine the power that it would have in the world, in our church, in our world, where the message of forgiveness and reconciliation is not just a concept that we think we believe and it's, and it's one of those things that God did for me. It's actually one of those things that God invites us to live it out. He's not, this, this is not. This is something very, very, very difficult to do. But it's only possible with a life that is transformed by God's grace.
And that's why Paul can't force it. He can't, he can't say to this guy, go and do this. It must be voluntary. It must be voluntary. And our calling as God's people is, is really simple, but very, very complicated. To be people who not just receive God's grace and not just let it transform us, but then let it, let, then let it get lived out. See, here's the, here's the real story about this, about this thing. I see a lot of myself in that slave. All of us were those slaves. That, that runaway person created by God and made for, a, made for a plan, but we thought we had a better one. We thought we had a, this, this, this great plan that was far better than God's plan, and we had a go at God and we ran away. But God never stopped searching for us. He loved us so much that he sent Jesus to die for us, to, to, to charge that sin that was ours to him, to forgive our sin, to set us free. I, I really can't figure out how, how, to, how to finish this sermon. I've tried to do it about a dozen times this week. It hasn't made any sense. I wonder if I can just use the last song to, to do that. Our last song is going to be this, this one up on the screen in a bit. I wonder what, if what Paul's trying to do is say, imagine if these words were this slave's testimony. As he's looking there at his first night back in his home, his first night back in you know, living in Philemon's house again, I wonder if this would be true of what he says. Alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin, lost without hope and no place to begin, your love made a way to let mercy come in. Release from my chains, I'm a prisoner no more. My shame was a ransom he faithfully bore. He cancelled my debt, he called me his friend when death was arrested and my life began. Oh, your grace so free. That's the reality of what Jesus did for me. That's the reality of what Jesus did for each of us. And it's what he invites us to, to live out to the people around us. To that annoying co-worker on a Thursday who's driving us crazy. To that, um, the family at home when you're tired and grumpy. To, the, um, to that driver who cuts you off in the sports car. When the world is panicked and everyone's a bit crazy, then grace that we have is what we show. The grace that we have from God is what we live out to the people around us. But can I just tell you one, one, one last thing? That grace and forgiveness, if we live it out, has the power to change the world. It has the power to transform our community. As we pray this morning, would you stand with me? We're just going to um, finish our time together. Um, close your eyes and we'll, we'll pray together. God, we...
We thank you that your word is timeless, that your word makes sense now, thousands of years later. Thank you, God, that your offer of grace and redemption and forgiveness is just, it's written in every page. It's written in every page. And God, I pray for those people this morning. Maybe you're that person who, who is that, who's the slave still on the run from God. And today I want to tell you that Jesus offers you new life. And if you'd never laid your past at the cross and, and put your faith in him, would you do that today? Maybe you're the God, that, God, that Christian who, um, who, God, we love to receive your grace, but we aren't that good in, in sharing it. And we pray, God, that you might extend our ability, extend our ability to show that grace in our lives. Extend our, our ability as a church to live that grace that you give so freely to the people in our community. God, maybe you're, the, um, maybe, maybe you're here this morning and, and you are that person stuck with that difficult decision. And maybe right now is the moment where we say, God, how best can we glorify you in, in this decision? With all these people and all these layers, how best can I honour you? God, help us to see people the way that you see them. Help us to see situations the way that you do. Help us to see opportunities the way you do. And to consider how best we can minister your gospel today. Amen. I know, I know this is um, just mulling over for me in my, in my mind. It probably still is for you. But this is a song that is worth shouting and doing loud. This is, this is a song that is personal for each and every one of us. So please join in and share it with us.